Don Shula's Dolphins have begun the 1972 season a sparkling 6-0, and now one of the more interesting tests of the year awaited them on 33rd Street up in Baltimore. The team that said see you later to Don Shula, the Baltimore Colts, would host the Dolphins at the end of October, and there was a score to be settled, that's for sure. This is Josh Lewin. This is the Perfect Season Podcast Series. Spoiler alert, as you may already be aware, this team would indeed get to 7-0 on the way to 17-0, and a great deal of the credit would be heaped on the 42-year-old coach in the band line and slacks on the sidelines, as Miami sportscasting legend Tony Segreto would put it about Don Shula. Could not have been a more perfect coach for a perfect team. This not And not just coach for this team, a coach for the entire franchise. When he came in, this franchise was, you know, just totally out of whack. Uh, they needed someone with a big rudder who could hold that rudder. And Don Shula was that person. Faithful man. Went to Mass every day. Work ethic, unmatched. You know, if you were on time, you were late. Uh, his discipline time management off the off the charts no one like them and ability to to recognize talent the ability to say okay this is who i am but this is what i have so how can i adapt to who i am to what i have and have and then have the what i have adapt to what i have okay so you follow me i am not going to take a round you know a round peg and put it in a square hole. What I'm going to do is try to figure out how to make the hole in the round peg and the square the square entry work. And if I have to remold it, then I'm going to remold it. And that's exactly what he did. Well, the stars and scrubs all somehow formed the perfect puzzle, all the pieces snapping together correctly. Larry Zonka, certainly a star and not a scrub, said this some 50 years after the fact. Now, as I look back years later, I wished I would have been a little more um, receptive to what he was driving at, because maybe somewhere along the line, one of us, if not me, maybe Jim Kick, one of us, would have adhered to his policies a little sooner. We might have had even a greater memory than just a single undefeated season. Zonka admits he and the coach didn't always see eye to eye in the heat of battle. Shula was a man who didn't tolerate nonsense, that's for sure. And back to Tony Segreto, who pointed out there were certain other staples of Shula besides the seriousness of purpose, some must-haves when you started taking inventory. You, you know, and a couple things that were that were just consistent. Always had great backup quarterbacks. Always had position competition so that if a guy went down, the next guy in was going to be just as good. And he was able to bring all of that together in the form of a team that was under an enormous amount of pressure. He was probably under the most, the most pressure coming off that, you know, that, that just drubbing by Dallas in the Super Bowl before he has been, now he's kind of being labeled as I've got beat. I was beaten by Namath, you know, I'm beaten by Dallas. You know, I still have Bob Lilly in my mind, chasing Bob Greasy all over the field. I'm nine and zero. Being undefeated without winning the big one means nothing. So what do I need to do to make this happen? 
and he was able to accomplish that. He was able to shut out the noise, shut out the noise for his team and create a, a season that was the Camelot for uh, the city of Miami. Uh, to this day, the, the mark to hit. Will, will it be DiMaggio's? I don't, it may be in light of how we're playing the game today. Uh, it might, it might equal, you know, trying to hit that 56 straight games. Uh, but, but uh, it was quite something. Magical year. Well, in this one, Shula going back to Baltimore with his old Colts quarterback with him in tow. Yeah, the guy who had been MVP for Baltimore in 68, led them into a Super Bowl in 70. Earl Morrill was in for the injured Bob Greasy, and he'd be up against a Colts team that had lost five of their first six games of 72, but that wasn't fooling anybody. Remember, this was a team picked to make it to this year's Super Bowl, not Miami. And Coach Shula had never won a game in Baltimore as a Dolphins head coach. In fact, in his two trips back since that rough departure, he had seen both trips end as humiliating defeats, 35-0 and 14-3. But one local reporter summed it up this way for Week 7. The Dolphins at 6-0 cannot win them all, and the Colts at 1-5 are long overdue. More intrigue in this one, the Colts' new GM was none other than Joe Thomas, the scouting genius who had provided Joe Robbie and Coach Shula with all those diamonds in the rough that no one else had uncovered. Thomas had drafted Bob Greasy over Steve Spurrier. He had drafted Zonko and other running backs with gaudier stats had been available. He had found Jim Kick out of Wyoming. He saw an all-pro guard in Larry Little when San Diego saw him as just a part-timer. He had followed Jake Scott from Georgia up to Canada. He had found free agents like Manny Fernandez and Bob Kuchenberg and so many more. And maybe best of all was bringing in Paul Warfield as the team's number one receiver. So now to late October of 72 with Thomas having changed sides and Shula having changed sides, game day was 59 degrees with drizzle. The infield dirt at Memorial Stadium quickly turning to mud. And this would not be a battle of the wily veterans, Morrill and Johnny Unitas, as many had hoped. The Colts' aging star, Johnny U, had been benched for young Marty Domris, which was quite the story in Baltimore. And the young quarterback actually started the game with his best drive of the day, only to see Jim O'Brien miss a 42-yard field goal. O'Brien had always been shaky, but had actually won the Colts a Super Bowl with a 32-yarder fairly recently, so he always seemed to get a little extra rope. After the missed field goal, Earl Morrill was in command. A 10-play, 80-yard drive, eight of the plays being runs. The eventual touchdown scored by Zonka from one yard out. Baltimore, meantime, never got close to scoring again. In the second quarter, the Dolphins' Curtis Johnson blocked a punt. He returned it to the Colts' 22. That was his second block punt in as many weeks. The Dolphins' special teams were indeed special. Here's part of that unit, Charlie Babb. Special teams, uh created some big plays uh, throughout the year uh, and uh, you know it was part of Shula's Don Shula that is he's no longer with us uh, that was part of his whole plan that there were three phases of football offense defense and special teams and all had to perform and be clubless and if one was dragging it down, the other had to pull it up. And, uh, and what happened throughout the year was, uh, uh, of course, if the offense was a, a little on the low side that day, the defense stood up or 
special teams did to create situations to help win a, win a ball game. And then when it got into the playoffs, uh, special teams, uh, me, me blocking a punt and, and Larry Seipel running the fake kickoff at uh, Pittsburgh were two huge plays that turned the momentum uh, of each game around. And, you know, Shula was quick to point out that that's where special teams fills the gap. Special teamers and backups, part of the recipe, no doubt. Rookie Larry Ball was part of that brigade of so-called other guys. And he was asked to recall a few of them for us now. Well, first of all, Charlie Babb. Charlie was uh, number 49, Ball number 51. We came in together as rookies the same round, drafted. And uh, we lived in the same area, the same place, same apartment complex, a rookie year. And it was like a... He understood what it was that we both went through, and that was great. But uh, on the defensive side, uh, Vern Denher, I had him as a roommate. Uh, Doug Swift, Mike Colin, Jesse Powell, they were all so helpful in in tutoring you and helping. Whereas you're out there, it's a it's a business, but they were they were so good with that. Um, Tim Foley was great. Uh, Dick Anderson, all the guys. I mean, that's the one thing that uh, I tell people all the time when they want to know about it. They say, well, they always say they were so businesslike. I said, well, they were businesslike. They had a goal to get back to, and they were businesslike. And uh, I thought the intelligence and the way we played uh, using the intelligence on the team was good, but it was a team that there was no bickering and infighting. I mean, I was with a couple of other teams, and that wasn't always true. I heard a shout-out in there for the defensive line. Everyone remembers Bonacani in the middle and those star safeties in the back. But Bob Hines is happy to get us back to talking more about those big uglies up front. Uh, the whole defensive line. Yeah, the, the, the four of us, you know, Manny, Bill, Vern, uh, we, we were just uh, very close and we really uh, enjoyed each other very much every, in every facet. And, you know, uh, like I say, we were in the, these apartments in Hollywood, Florida. And like we had Mike Colin, Jesse Powell, Vern was there. Uh, Kuchubiger was there for a year or two and Langer. And uh, those guys that you you become bound with them not only on the field but uh, socially with your wives and and the kids as they start coming along and things like that. So I would say more to anybody, Vernon was my best closest friend, and the Mike Colin and Jesse Powell were very very close too. Now, great to hear some of those old names. And here's another one: the versatile wide receiver Marlon Briscoe. Later in this game, Earl Morrill let Briscoe have some fun because there was Earl tossing an overhand lateral to Briscoe. From where Briscoe threw a bullet to Paul Warfield down near the goal line, Zonka would get the final few inches on the next play for another score. It was 13-0 Miami. And already two rushing touchdowns for Zonka. Two of the six he would end up with for the regular season. It's a low total, right? Wouldn't you have guessed more than six in a Super Bowl season? The next year, by the way, uh, the future Hall of Famer would have only five rushing touchdowns. And believe it or not, Zonk's best touchdown season was at 33 years old in his second bite of the apple with Miami. After his three-year stint as a New York Giant, he'd return in 1979 and get to the end zone 12 times. That's twice what he did as a 26-year-old in 72. Anyway, it stayed 13-0 when on the muddy field, Garo Yepremian missed the extra point. But no matter... Lloyd Mumford would soon block a Baltimore attempted a field goal, and soon after that, Garrow made a field goal. It was 16-0 Dolphins at the half. Back to Mumford. 
who was slight even by cornerback standards. He was 5'10", listed at 176. No one believed the 176. He had made it to the NFL on speed and skill and want to. His close friend Marlon Briscoe liked to call him Mr. Wizard. And the Wizard had actually lost his starting position the year before, but he had become a special teams captain. And here in 72, he was a former starter who had been knocked back a peg, but never once complained about his lot. In the third quarter, Mumford's buddy, Curtis Johnson, made another great play. He nailed the punt returner deep in his own end. That caused another fumble recovered by the Dolphins at the 20. Johnson was probably the quietest Dolphin of that 72 team. Very reserved and introspective, but very articulate too. Harold Baines in baseball would probably be the the best comparison. He was what the guys all call the clutch football player. That is to say he would get beaten several times every practice it seemed, but then when it was game time it was always another matter. Johnson had grown up in Toledo, Ohio, starring locally for the University of Toledo, leading his team to an undefeated season his senior year. He would retire in Toledo, becoming a firefighter for many years. Interesting guy with quite possibly the best afro in the whole league, too. Anyway, after that fumble caused by Johnson, a few plays later, Mercury Morris was into the end zone for another easy touchdown. The final would end up 23 to nothing. And special teams was really the talk of the town after this one was over. Players like Malty Moore, Charlie Babb, Larry Ball, Eddie Jenkins, Jesse Powell, they had made the team because of their value crashing downfield on punts. Charlie Lee was a key player, too. The only NFL player ever signed right out of high school at this time. He had written to Commissioner Pete Rosell explaining he was married with a child on the way, needed to support them, and an exception was made for him. After a taxi squad stint in Pittsburgh, he bounced around with some teams in the Continental and Canadian leagues before joining the Dolphins and fitting right in. Other backup types were big all year. Take the fascinating and super smart Doug Swift. Swift was maybe the least likely man on the team to be a pro football player. Well, other than his roommate Garo Yepremi and the 132-pound field goal kicker. But talking to Swift now, he remembers their living arrangement. He and Garrow together, a bit like Felix Unger and Oscar Madison, the original odd couple. Well, he was an orderly guy, you know. He was tidy and the disaster. His side of the apartment was all well kept. It was, you know, the closet was on the floor. I had a mattress on the floor. The only important part of my apartment was a music system, you know. And at the time, I, I was I was interested in the health foods, and I I started juicing carrots, juicing celery, juicing oranges, and that was a training matter. What came up once when when Garrow uh, was asked by Al Levine about the conditions at the training camp, and he said it was a disaster. Uh, just an open-ended comment like that. Shula was very upset. Garrow went in there and and he said, Shula said to Garrow, what, what's up? What are you talking about here? Uh, you know, we'd be in the nicest conditions I've ever seen at a training camp. He says, Garrow said, coach, come with me. And he brought Shula over to the room at the training camp. And I had bushels of carrots and celery in the room and a lot of fruit flies. And Julie came in and looked at Carol and said, look at this. This is what we're dealing with here. Julie looked at that and said, Swift, 
what you know and then he looked at me and he looked at my Sarah, the whites of my eyes and they had turned from all the carotene I was ingesting with the carrot juice he said your eyes are orange what's going on here let's solve Garrow Garrow thought he was on the way back to Detroit Nah, it all worked out. Doug Swift, former juicer, future anesthesiologist, was the son of two doctors in upstate New York. He had played college football for Little Amherst College in western Massachusetts, known more for Rhodes Scholars and linebackers. And that college, especially back then, was big on promoting its artists as opposed to its athletes. Swift, indeed, was majoring in art, but his coach there told him he had the potential to play pro football. And upon graduation, there was a bit of a crossroads appearing It was either go for pro football or go teach art at a private high school. And wait a minute, how did a guy from Syracuse end up at Amherst anyway? You know, I started, the reason I became interested in football was because I grew up in Syracuse Park, which was uh, football crazy at that time. Uh, The Orange Men, the Syracuse Orange Men had a great team. Jim Brown, uh, Ernie Davis, Floyd Little, all those guys, and not, not... not to not mention Larry Larry Chunka, the great one, thirty nine. <laughs> uh, he came through Syracuse, and I I had actually seen him play there. Uh, prior to go, I, I must have been home from school for a, a game or something. Anyway, I was football crazy, and uh, I was a skinny, rangy guy, but I wasn't any big big league prospect, you know, so uh, I was fortunate to get accepted at Amherst College, Western Mass, went up there, and they had a really terrific football and a uh, great coaching staff. And so we had, except for our my second year there, we consistently won games. We were a good team. Uh, second year was, I had this uh, sinking spell where I, I I was bigger and the and the losing, and I was determined that I was going to do a graphic cure for myself. So I wanted to move to California and play for a Pac-10 team, you know. And the coach talked to me. He but he used the psychological trick of telling me at that time that he thought I had big big league potential, you know, pro potential. And the best place to get that done would be staying right where I was at Amherst. Well, once he graduated Amherst, Swift tried out in the CFL. He got cut. Didn't fit up there as a, a long hair and a thinking man. Kind of like another guy up there, Jake Scott, at the time. Swift washed out in Canada, but Joe Thomas talked him into a tryout in Miami. And it was there at that first training camp that he realized, yeah, he could hold his own. He played well in Miami, but to hedge his bets... He was taking pre-med classes simultaneously at the U in 72. Yada, yada, yada. He's still a successful anesthesiologist in Philadelphia to this very day. But he wouldn't have been a Dolphin at all if not for the man who by now was the GM in Baltimore, the aforementioned Mr. Thomas. Well, I think he was a, he was a kind of a brilliant guy. Uh, he, did a, he came to mind as a result of being very successful with the Vikings. And being Lebanese, like our owner, Joe Robbie, he had a, a real synergy. They got together and Joe brought him down to Miami and they did a pretty remarkable job over their three, four years. 
assembling the, the, what became the team that was so successful. Now here in week seven of 72, it was Swift and Scott and all those guys against Joe Thomas. And one look at the final stats told you all you needed to know about how this was going. First downs was 24 to 12 in this game for Miami. 286 rushing yards to 114. And it didn't help that Baltimore lost a couple of fumbles too. Zonka, 19 carries for 92 yards. Morris, 11 carries for 71. Jim Kick, 14 carries for 52. Hubert Ginn got in this game, three carries for 32. Charlie Lee, three carries for 11. Add it all up, 52 carries through the drizzle and mud to deliver the mail this late afternoon. Once again, it was the third straight game now that not a single Dolphins tight end or wide receiver caught more than two passes for the day. You had Fleming with one, Twilly two, Paul Warfield two. And here's the crazy thing about Warfield's season, all pro selection, future Hall of Famer. Paul Warfield had one game all year with more than four catches. He had one five. Mostly he just had a sack full of twos and threes. And he says now that was just fine then. Football is a team game, and um, what is important, uh, whatever level one is playing at or has the opportunity uh, to experience, uh, team wins are the most important thing. And the contributions of all uh, offense, defense, uh, of course, in professional football, especially teams, is all very important. And uh, in my beginnings in football, certainly going back to grammar school in my hometown of Warren, Ohio, that was the theme, and uh, ironically, uh, my very first experience with football was touch football that I'm speaking of in grammar school, and uh, as a sixth grader, I was a part of the city championship team that uh, also happened to be undefeated. Every Dolphins player to a man had great affection for the gentleman from Northern Ohio, the former Cleveland Browns star, Mr. Warfield. Ed Jenkins remembered the great one like this. So so the first time I saw Paul, he was on a training table. Uh, he was doing his stretches, getting taped. And he was, uh, I think he might have had the... Uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal folded up next to him. And if you've ever been in New York, people would ride the trains. They folded the long way. That's when you know you're smart. You fold it the long you, know, you don't you don't crease it. And so Paul was sitting there talking. And, uh, you know, he was on one table and Marlon Briscoe was on another. And Bob Gracie was kind of on the third. And they were just talking. I was like, and they were talking about the game. They would, they would go back and forth, say some business stuff. So Paul, to me, was almost like a professor. And and so that's how I got from him. I said, oh, this is what a pro does. Then I started watching him after practice. Paul would actually count the steps that it would take on a certain delivery. And we used to work with him. And we'd go, one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six. It was almost like music. The steps. He was like Bojangles. It was like seven, eight steps to here. I think he would I think he was even showing Greasy how to pitch the ball to him in the middle so that when he caught it, he'd be falling down and wouldn't be getting killed you know over the, over the middle so they would be working out the different throws and how many steps it took he was a master and Otto Stowe would try to pick pick that up from him and of course Marlon Briscoe had his own system so they had their steps down along with the throws that I'd never seen a master work he was a master working and besides that he was always professional Paul would always talk to you say hello you know he was just a, a complete gentleman and I, I used to call him what Howard, Howard Twilley, I mean, Howard Cosell used to say, 
the incomparable Paul Warfield, and he was incomparable. That's actually not a bad co-sell right there. Warfield, two catches on this day. Earl Morrill had thrown for all of 85 yards. But that Dolphins ground attack was just too much, as was the defense. Pitching a shutout on the road is never an easy thing to do. But this would actually be one of three shutouts that the no-name defense turned in this season in the 14 regular season games played. The man in the middle up front of that defense, the hard-charging, albeit blind as a bat, Manny Fernandez. And he was asked about how much he noticed things like three shutouts and allowing 12 points per game overall. Proud of, I mean, just proud of being a part of it. Proud to have been the small part that I was. And we had some of the brightest, best football players uh, to ever play the game that have never gotten the recognition to them. Uh, you know, I'm going to go on a tirade here. Bill Stanfield, uh, Jake Scott, uh, Dick Anderson. Why aren't they in the Hall of Fame? Why did it take Nick 20 years to get in? Uh, I mean, we've got five or six off the offense, but they really, they led the league in rushing, but that was about it. (laughs) They get all the credit for the wins, but it's not too hard to win when you're giving up 10, 12 points a game. Hey, make no mistake, Fernandez loved and still loves his teammates on the other side of the ball, but I get it. The offense usually does get the glory, and the defense is just part of the furniture sometimes but on this day in baltimore that no-name defense for miami did itself up in miami quality neon a 23 nothing whitewash of the team picked by many to go to the super bowl could anyone or anything stop this miami band of brothers the next obstacle in the road would be next week with a home game against new england and we'll be back soon enough to tell you how that one went For now, this is Josh Lewin thanking all of our guests for their generosity and their time, thanking you for the exact same things. Once again, the happy final from Memorial Stadium in Balmer, hun. Dolphins 23 and the Colts nothing. Nothing.